0: The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You
1: should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.
2: The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. These leaders of industry are the best at what they do in their chosen field, but all have one thing in common. They are passionate about doing things the right way. They are not-for-profit pioneers, they are good governance experts. They are social entrepreneurs. They consider financial and social investments thoughtfully for the long term.
1: I think a lot of that is around maintaining at a leadership level the kind of energy and enthusiasm and demonstrating that we've got the capacity to grow and to innovate and we'll recognise and respect that.
2: Be inspired to make a bigger difference in the things that matter. Proudly presented by Ethical Partners Funds Management.
0: Hello and welcome. My name is Matt Nicard. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Ethical Partners Funds Management. And our guest today is Michael Trail. Now, Michael grew up in the primarily coal mining town of Morwell in country Victoria. And from there, he made his way to Melbourne University, Harvard Business School, and then spent 15 years at Macquarie Bank, where he was co-founder of the Macquarie Group's private equity arm, Macquarie Direct Investment. And then in 2002, he decided to make a radical change and joined Social Ventures Australia as founding CEO. In 2010, Michael was one of the architects behind the establishment of Good Start Childcare, which was created, as you might remember, out of the ABC learning collapse. And it's now one of the largest social enterprise organisations in the world with over 600 childcare centres, revenue of over a billion dollars. That's not enough though, because in his latest venture, For Purpose, Partners, Michael is trying to bring superannuation and other significant funding sources and corporate management skills into aged care, mental health, disability, social housing, and the education sectors. Now, of course, we know a lot about this because of Michael's excellent book, Jumping Ship, and I can highly recommend it. It's here in the uh, Ethical Partners Library, which is a real library, by the way. And I've got the book in my hand right now. It was winner of the uh, Ashurst Business Literature Prize, which is acknowledged as Australia's most important award for business writing. So welcome, Michael, and thank you for agreeing to be our first guest on the Good Investing Podcast. Thanks so much, Matt, and delighted to be with you. Now, can you remember when you had your first sense of social justice, and and where do you think this came from?
1: The community that I grew up in, as I reflected in in Jumping Ship, and thank you so much for the shameless book plug as well, it was very much about the community of more, population 17,000, a country town about 90 miles southeast of Melbourne. And it was a community where there was a sense of community, but there were also plenty of extremes and, and you saw up close and personal kids who came from pretty challenging circumstances. I think the particular memory, I was a very keen athlete and runner and I have a vivid recollection of... Uh, an Indigenous uh, kid who was a great mate of mine and a fabulous runner. And uh, one of the one of the things we did, we won a bronze medal in the state 4 by metre championships, and Theo was a big part of that. But when you used to swing by Theo's place to go to training, it was a, a very different house. Uh, you could see that Theo grew up in circumstances which were pretty challenging, uh, a lot of people in and out at home. And uh, Theo was a great kid, sadly. Uh, subsequently, I learnt that he... Ended up in the juvenile justice system, but you have brushes uh, like that in in a community like Maul, and They're the sort of things that stick with you and give you a broader sense of what's going on in life.
0: Yeah, I, I know from reading your book that as an eleven year old in a in a Victorian regional race, regional running race over ten k's, I think you you won that in a time of forty minutes and fifty one seconds, so sub forty one minutes, which is pretty incredible. You then. Interestingly, you went on to run in the state championships where you got a silver medal and you said your dad set expectations low, so you relax rather than clam up and get too stressed. Um, do, do you think there's something in that for, for, for business as well, um, that approach?
1: Yeah, I do think there's a lot in that. And look, I was a pretty obsessive runner as a kid. I loved athletics. I was competitive. But before some of the big events and particularly the state championships, I used to get so nervous that I didn't actually compete at my best. And uh, the last event I ran in the under 12s was a cross country before you go into the senior age groups. And typically, while on paper, some of my times would suggest I should have done pretty well or at least finished on the day. So I'd really finished better than seventh or eighth. And Dad, before the last state cross-country championship, said, look, relax, you're in an age group where, you know, there's some really good runners. Um, and he toned down expectations, the net result of which I went into the race a lot more relaxed. Uh, I won a silver medal, which, meant, which mattered a lot, but it was a bit of a lesson. And I think that lesson carried forward is that being ready and prepared for things but also being in a state where you're relaxed, you have some belief in yourself, and I think that's as relevant or resonant in a business setting as it is on the sporting field. I mean, I'm sure like uh, like many of us, you've gone into those meetings where you're a bit on edge, it's an important meeting, or it's a meeting where you're cutting your teeth and there's people around who've got a lot of experience and seniority and you're not sure about your place and space in the world or at the table. Uh, and I do think those sporting lessons about do the homework but back yourself, believe in yourself and uh, and, be- and, and behave accordingly, I think they do stick with you.
0: Mm, mm. no I know what you mean uh, in your book you, you you say that you do return to mobile from time to time um of course it was indirectly in the news recently when energy Australia said that it would um, close its nearby power station um you know in 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 the near future really um, and replace it with a with a battery facility and that's part of that energy transition that's going on um presumably the open cut Coal mine there will close um, as well. How do you think a town like Morwell transitions from from coal to new industries? What, what do you think can be done to support that kind of change that's going to be needed?
1: Yeah, well, that sort of community transition is really challenging. And again, one of the things I reflected on the in the book, the community that I grew up in the '60s and '70s there uh, there a lot the the employment levels were pretty good. It was a mixed community, but when you rip jobs. Out of a community like that, it's tough for it to pivot, and I think at a national and policy level, we need to think seriously about that. Uh, I'm sufficiently a strong believer in the free market and the forces of good for capitalism that I kind of recognise and respect that there needed to be some transition. Um, but sometimes we really struggle with how to support communities through that. And you know, I was really struck when I was my brother and I were back for a school reunion a few years ago, and the existence across that community of kids who came from different backgrounds is something that sticks with, you know, there there were many families when I grew up, and it's got worse, not better, um, who were talented, capable, but it was a community where there often were pretty low expectations of by families of their kids uh, of the schools. And, you know, guess what? Kids step into the expectations that are set for them. So kids that we knew that were bright, capable, but, you know, hadn't really taken advantage of, the educational employment pathways that their talent would suggest they should. And the privilege that my brother Barry and I had, we had parents who cared for us, who valued education. Dad was the first in four generations to go past year 10 at school. And so I think it was really in both their footsteps that we were empowered and motivated to have a crack. And there was always a sense that if we had to go at school – Uh, And in life, you know, doors would open to us. But equally, we looked around the classroom and it was pretty clear that that wasn't wasn't universal.
0: So so it clearly shaped you as a person? Yeah, deeply so. I mean, there's the old
1: Jesuit line, show me the young person at seven and I'll show you the adult. And I think there's a, a deep resonance in that.
0: And, and look, jumping to Macquarie, and we're, we're, we're jumping many years and decades here in, in a matter of minutes, but at, at what point did you first get a little nagging feeling or a nagging sense that uh, whilst at Macquarie there was, there was more to business than closing the deal and getting the financial outcome? Was there a moment there you can point to that – when you came to that realization,
1: there was, there was, and I'm always careful in telling this story. I mean, I really, really enjoyed the time, and I felt, I felt then, and I felt now, it was a great privilege to work at Macquarie for 15 years. It, as you'd mentioned, Matt, in the intro, I was uh, had the great opportunity to be a co-founder of the bank's original private equity business. Some of the, I had the great opportunity to work with some of the. Big names, great names of Australian finance uh, who were mentors and became friends. David Clark, who was founding chair, Tony Berg, the founding CEO, Robin Crawford, who has to become such a fabulous supporter of the work I've been involved in more recently on the social purpose side. But to mm-hmm. the point of your question, um, I'd had uh, 15 years at the bank. I'd done well personally, professionally, and financially. It's a bank that pays well, and we'd done well. We'd built a business that was, uh, these would be rounding errors on the bank's balance sheet now, but we'd we'd deployed close to half a billion dollars in capital at a rate of return north of 30%. And and so we're in good shape. And if I looked ahead, there was more opportunity to do more deals and make more money. But I remember vividly, uh, and one of my sporting passions is Aussie rules, and one of the joys was coaching to my two sons in the Aussie Rules 40 team and my oldest, Christopher, was playing with the Willoughby Wildcats, very underrated force in the North Shore Junior Footy League. And uh, I loved that. But I particularly loved and I remember one weekend vividly uh, coaching the team and there was a, a, a young boy in Christopher's side called Paddy. And uh, I knew I'd got to know Paddy very well. He was a terrific kid. But he had uh, dyslexia. He didn't have a fun time at school, bullied a bit at school, and uh, school often was a place he, he wagged periodically. But I knew from his dad, he was a fabulous athlete, great footballer, how much self-esteem he got out of his footy. And the the kind of midlife crisis weekend, I guess, in hindsight, was I was coaching the footy team and I woke up one Sunday morning when we are in the middle of doing due diligence on What was then a kind of major prospective buyout investment for us, $20 million commitment that we were looking at for Repco, the automotive parts company. And Again, many of your listeners will know that feeling. The adrenaline's flowing. Should we pull the trigger? Should we invest? Have we done the homework? And that's what I normally would have been doing. But I remember waking up at six in the morning thinking, Paddy's been really quiet for the last couple of weeks. Maybe I should move him to full forward or make him captain and get his energy up. And... I remember thinking that Sunday night, I'm waking up uber excited about what I can do to try and have in some way a positive influence on the life of a kid who's been struggling a bit. And I feel pretty good about that. Um, And that was really the sort of moment of reflection where I thought, look, I've had an incredibly uh, gifted run courtesy of my background and the opportunity to study at uh, Melbourne University and Harvard and join Macquarie. But there was a niggling question in what I've learned and where I came from, could I use the skills that I'd learned in the last 20 years to have some sort of positive impact on the kind of community like more, which, you know, in a lot of respects socially uh, had not only gone sideways, it had gone backwards. And uh, so that was, that was the kind of catalytic weekend in that mm. sense that led to the jumping ship.
0: And – I guess the the best example of of perhaps using those skills for a different purpose was was Good Start. Um, if you had to put down one thing as the key to success of Good Start, it has been an incredible uh, success. Just looking at the annual report um, that was recently issued, I mean revenue of greater than a billion dollars, um, six hundred childcare centres, and doing it all for kids and the future of Australia. Uh, it, it, it is amazing. If you had to put down one thing as the key to success of Good Start?
1: I think at the heart of Good Start was the ability to get high quality talent from across the sectors, galvanized about the idea that mm. you can do things with business discipline for social purpose. And Matt, as a quick backdrop to that, I think the seeds of Good Start go back to when we started the work and I jumped ship to an organisation which I became founding chief executive of called Social Ventures Australia. Mm. And at the heart of that was the very simple idea that if you could use private equity and business-type disciplines to back not business but social entrepreneurs, Mm. you could make a real difference and potentially you could make a real difference to communities like Moore if you thought about different programs, different delivery. And the sort of things I'd learned in 20 years um, of business experience and 15 years at Macquarie it's not just about the checks, but the support, the strategy, the accountability, uh, and that's what SVA was committed to. Ooh. And um, so, the thing about Good Start, it was kind of as as in life, those things can be a bit of serendipity and opportunity. When ABC Childcare famously or infamously went bankrupt, here was a way to think about connecting the dots of what at that point seven or eight years of Social ventures Australia experience yep. taught us, and so we knew where to go in terms of the leading non-profit agencies. We built sufficient credibility. My late great friend and mentor and founding director of Macquarie Bank, Robin Crawford, was instrumental both as a active funding supporter but the founding chair of Good Start, uh, and it's become a poster child of what's possible. As you mentioned, it's a one point one plus billion dollar social enterprise, it's the largest provider of early learning and care, emphasis on quality, emphasis on inclusion. 136 of those centres are in some of the toughest postcodes uh, in Australia, and that's a big chunk of the 675 centres Good Start has. So, you know, I think – Good Start's become quite a high-profile story, and it was a big motive in writing the book to try and share the lessons of Good Start, why it matters, because I think a lot of people have looked at that and thought, well, wow, that's that's pretty interesting and pretty impressive because it both generated a 12% return to the founding investors, which uh, for all of us with a financial markets background is not to be sneezed at, but it's done a visibly high-quality job of delivering better care, of inclusion. You know, there's an explicit policy about making Good Start centres available to every Australian child who wants to get into them. So those sorts of things aren't normally uh, the traditional purview of a pure for-profit player, and uh, I think it, it's at many levels Good Start's worked on that idea that you can do business disciplines for social purpose at scale.
0: And we, we invest in a number of different companies that, um, that, that are part of this, this new asset class, if you like, and, and you know, great placemaking organisations like Mervac, um, even smaller companies like Eureka Group Holdings for seniors-related housing, Arena Reed, of course, the landlord of, of, of Good Start in, in many of their centres. I mean, were you conscious at the time that you're actually forming or helping to form a new asset class, this social infrastructure? Was that a discussion or was that just kind of an outcome of, 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 the, of the things you were doing at Good Start?
1: It's an interesting question. I, th- I think it was probably more an outcome of what we did, the fact that we saw an opportunity, we stepped into it, we uh, mm. were able to make that work. And, but I think fairly quickly it dawned on us that this is not some kind of fluky one-off. If you look at the common denominators uh, scale, sector of the economy where there's a government and policy imperative to be closely involved. That's not unique to early learning. And the ability to have high quality board and management team, which draws explicitly skills from across the business, policy, and social purpose sectors. So if you step back from that, and I remember I, I, I gave a TEDx talk on this in 2014. And the argument then, which I don't think has changed, is that Mobilizing mainstream pools of capital across those sectors, this is not small-scale, fragmented social enterprise. It's large-scale deployment of billions of dollars. Think aged care, think TAFE, think early learning, think social and affordable and community housing. Now, these are big chunks of the economy. And um, what I said in the TEDx talk uh, was, hey, if this is a legitimate asset class, call it impact investing or social infrastructure, why should that not be 2 to 3% of what was then a $1.8 trillion funding pool? Well, now that pool, as we know, is $3 trillion. Uh, the numbers haven't changed. And uh, in personally and professionally, I'm very committed to the idea that that opportunity still exists. And I think actually, particularly in a low growth, low yield, low inflation environment, if you can get high single digit to mid-teen returns for what are actually pretty prudent, conservatively weighted investments. What's not to What's not to like about that?
0: Seems like the perfect segue, I've got to say, to uh, for Purpose Investment Partners, uh, which you recently started with um, with Andrew Thorburn. Um, is this a so it's an extension of the concept of Good Start? Aiming to, you know, make a real positive social difference with an acceptable level of return. Do you mind just running us through the concept? Yeah. So, for Purpose Investment
1: Partners, which was formed with the very generous support and I should say urging of my old friend uh, Mark Carnegie, we have a long history. Mark's a, a maverick and very successful investor. I've been involved on Mark's board, but Mark's a interesting cat with a deep social conscience. Um, And he was very pushy of me to say, you need to really be proactive in originating and finding more of those good start type deals. Mm. And if there's anything I can do to help, I'm in. And he was incredibly generous in multiple ways in the formation of for-purpose investment partners. Uh, We've now built a small but really high quality team, Andrew Thorburn, who will be uh, well known to many as the former CEO of NAB. Andrew's passionate about the space, brings a depth of experience Chris Yu has a private equity background and, and a terrific team behind that. What's our goal? Find and origi- originate more deals like Good Start Focus Areas, aged care, disability services, social and community housing. Um, and really, it's about mobilizing and creating the deal opportunities, but building a fund as a for-purpose entity ourselves. We're a nonprofit, so it's all about trying to build to scale in an ethical, transparent way, and uh, we're up and running. We, uh, we've we done a couple of transactions most recently, and we're very excited about it. We acquired a vocational education training business in Victoria called Catalyst, and that's focused on just critical areas of the service delivery economy, uh, training for uh, people in the areas of early learning, of aged care, of disability services. You know, it's just critical employment space in the economy, and- and we really think there's an opportunity to replicate the work of Good Start in that and, and in other sectors of the economy. So front end of that, but very exciting. And we've got real momentum now, I think.
0: So just just help me understand that a little bit better. So, so Good Start's a not-for-profit in itself, and people can see that from public disclosures and the you know the l that it generates every year. Um, so how just help me explain those investments. How, how do you balance that social return on investment? There's a number of ways you can measure that, obviously, but then also the financial Elements given that a lot of these businesses will be run as not for profit. So, how should I think about that?
1: Yeah, it's a really important question because I think some people shy away from the idea that a social purpose entity can generate returns that are institutionally acceptable. I disagree really strongly. If you look at Good Start, um, one caveat on this is that, uh, as the legislation is currently structured, you need to generate returns through debt instruments. I don't think that's a problem. In good start, as I mentioned, there was a twelve percent sub debt um, that, in, and, and so investors receiving over a long period of time, twelve percent is a very decent return that would pass muster. And in terms of the social performance metric, again. Sticking with Good Start uh, measures of quality in terms of what's going on in the centres, as illustrated, for example, when we acquired the old ABC, there were 160-degree qualified early learning teachers. Now there's over 1,200. Um, there's a whole series of metrics and focus. If you look at the board papers, that will reflect quality, that will ref- reflect issues around inclusion. And um, and Tony Nicholson, who was one of the uh, founding members of Good Start, Always said, if you do a great job in terms of quality, there'll be a virtuous circle that you create in demand, and that's been the case. You know, what's a key performance indicator in early learning? It's occupancy. What was the occupancy when we invested in Good Start in twenty ten? Sixty seven percent. What's it now? North of eighty percent. Gotcha. And yeah. doing better than competitors. So there's a there's a logic in us, and I think a deep symmetry between ethical, high-quality service delivery aligned with what government should want, and government, let's not forget, is a big supporter and funder of the sectors I'm talking about, and and that drives sustainable, ethical, long-term returns. So, I think those things match up. And um, we at For Purpose, uh, the transactions we've done in social and affordable housing in uh, Catalyst, which is the vet provider, then non-profit entities. We equally think it's quite possible that you can structure ethically focused uh, entities in the, in a in a for-profit realm, as long as you're explicit and careful around the social purpose measures, as we will be.
0: Okay, no, that's good. That's really clear. And and what, what's the biggest challenge at the moment? Is it sourcing the capital? Is it. Getting the effective managers to, to manage the investments—I so guess it's you guys to a large degree—or um, is it finding the underlying investments? Where, where's the where's the blockage? What's what's the toughest part of this?
1: We think the investment opportunities are there, as we're proving. It's mobilising mainstream chunks of capital, particularly from the super funds. Who uh, and I say this, noting that one of my other hats is I'm on the board and chair the investment committee of Sun Super, but I am also conscious that I work. In that respect, with a sector that's pretty conservative, they want to see proof points of anything that looks or smells like a new opportunity or new asset class before they'll commit. I think there's a lot of evidence. Some of the funds like Hester and AWARE have been more proactive in that space, but there's no question to me that the opportunities are there if you originate and create them with the skills and the networks and the ethics that's required to do that effectively, but that mobilising those big chunks of capital that's starting to happen, but we need to accelerate it, and one begets the other, find the deals, find the proof points, deliver on the returns, the capital will flow. There is a bit of, uh, I think, a interim phase which we're going through at the moment. So the funders of good start were a mix of uh, mostly high net worths and foundations. They are people who are very happy with the returns they've got. Um, that's a group that continues to engage and support that market, and I think there's a lot of capital around from those sources. Uh, they uh, can back deals. If you want to quantify that, probably in the range of twenty up to eighty million. I think the hundred million dollar plus checks will inevitably need to come from the super funds because that's where the big licks of capital are. And uh, I think that that's the opportunity set that we certainly want to be focused on building it for purpose investment partners.
0: Um, as you mentioned, um, catalyst is is the the case study for this for the purposes here, It's not a case study for you guys obviously, but just for for here. So do you do, do you go in there, work with management, suggest changes, do you alter the capital structure? Do you look to grow differently, and then is there an exit? Well, there's always an exit at some sort. Are we looking five, ten years, but maybe just can you run a few of run us through a few of those broad metrics.
1: They're really important questions that go to the heart of why we think this is actually an attractive investment class. So dealing with each of those questions in turn, how we work with management, what we do structurally, we bought Catalyst, which was a for-profit entity. Um, We bought it because we liked the way it operated. It checked out very well as being a decent ethical provider. So Mm. that's critical. So we feel like there's a high quality team to work with. We converted their existing structure into a non-profit, we believe, in terms of the opportunity to engage with strategic social purpose focused organizations that are national in the aged care and early learning space, that alignment and that values alignment is really important, so we did that. From an investment point of view, we structured the acquisition and the funders are investors in a 15-year 12% coupon debt instrument. We think that really fairly reflects the risk return. Uh, There will be the opportunity, of course, subject to business performance for that return to be accelerated. So, for example, there's a reset option at years six, nine, and 12 to bring forward the coupon payment, uh, albeit at a lower rate. So, if I'm an investor, the business has done well, I'm in year six, I've had 12% coupon for six years. I can say, actually, got other things I'd like to do. I want to bring forward the coupon for the balance of the nine years, but that'll be at 8%. Yep. Yep. So, there's a pretty simple set of maths in that, which all your listeners and you guys would appreciate that kicks up the IRR to probably a bit over 20%, 21%, 22%. But you've got a choice. If you liked it and the business is traveling well, probably not a lot of places you're going to get a reliable 12% coupon. Um, so that's really important. The third part of your question, which is really interesting, is that we think these are infrastructure type assets. Now, looking at the precedent of Goodstart, we did that deal in 2010. Uh, Goodstart celebrated its 10th birthday last year. The business has gone well. Social purpose is delivered. Is it likely to change its structure? No. Was the intent of the founders when they set it up for it to change its structure? No. And so we think these things have a much longer time horizon, I think 10 to 15 years. And, and I think what we'll find over time is that these long dated social infrastructure assets, if you've got the right talent at the table, they'll have the opportunity to be quite enduring. And again, if I flip hats, look at the hat I must wear as a fiduciary with responsibilities at Sun Super. what am I looking to do? We have a $82 billion fund, members average age 38, average account balance $57,000. And we talk about helping people fulfill their retirement dreams. Now, if I don't take a 20 to 30 year view of that, I would suggest respectfully I'm failing in my duty of care. So if we connect the dots, we can see the alignment between this 10 to 15-year horizon of long-dated ethical returns which are reliable. Uh, that's actually pretty attractive, and I think that's the selling proposition we're pushing it for purpose. This is, and I might sound a little bit like a poacher turned gamekeeper given my <coughs> private equity experience in this, but with due respect to many of my friends and colleagues in that market, there is an element of rip it and grip it and flog it in private equity over a five to seven year period, it's driven <clears throat> by the desire, let's not kid ourselves, to catch fees by flipping businesses. Uh, that's not what we're about at For Purpose.
0: I'm not going to wish you any more comment on that. You've, you've, um, that's very interesting. Uh, and look, final question on this, um, you're also the Chair of the Federal government's Social Impacting Investment Task Force, um, so I think you're pretty well qualified to answer this question. What role can government play in bringing all this together and enabling it to happen?
1: Yeah, well, that was a really interesting experience and opportunity and, and terrific that the federal government sees that there's a need for an uh, integrated approach, which the task force has stepped into. So we feel very strongly that for the federal government to take a role as an enabler Uh, as a supporter and in part a funder to help catalyse and transform the market is really powerful. We've drawn deeply on the experience of the UK where Sir Ron Cohen, who's globally recognised as the guru of impact investing, did a brilliant job going back to a task force that he himself chaired in 2001. And if you look at the footprints and fingerprints of that, a large-scale wholesaler called Big Society Capital that mobilised £400 million of funding that's been leveraged more than two and a half to one. And what did that do? That was the catalyst for fund managers and originators to get set up. Uh, We think there's the capacity for a similar thing to be set up in Australia with the right support. And equally the opportunity to support earlier stage ventures and social enterprises uh, in thoughtful ways that access those business skills and strategic disciplines. So we think there's an opportunity for that whole market to transform essentially from what's been worthwhile but in a lot of respects a bit of a cottage industry and that the government role as a policy enabler and partner to do that, Uh, the precedents out of the UK would certainly suggest a similar parallel opportunity and and, uh, there's an engaged conversation with government about getting those things on the map and making them happen and that's very exciting.
0: And look, last question on this, what's the main difference between Traditional impact investing and what you're doing it for purpose. How would you summarize I would just summarise that specifically.
1: Look, I tend not to get hung up in the in the uh, in the terminology. I would say I do have some scepticism, and if I was being blood, I'd say there's a bit of lipstick on a few pigs, where <laughs> some of the funds are saying, "Hey, we're." Uh, We we do impact investing, but there's quite a bit of window dressing about what that really looks like. Matt, to me, the important thing about impact investing is that there's absolute credibility and integrity about the social purpose metrics. They need to be visible. They need to be measurable. And while they're a lot more challenging to measure than the traditional financial performance margin and ROE type measures... If they're not evident and there's not uh, integrity around how they're looked at and reviewed, then uh, I don't think it's a genuine impact
0: investment and there's a few of those kicking around. Okay, I'm going to shift gears now to a few standard questions um, that we're going to ask all our guests on this um, Good Investing podcast. Can I ask you a little bit about leadership? What's the most important aspect of good leadership that you think is most often overlooked? Humility. Humility.
1: Without exception, the leaders uh, who demonstrate humility are not to be confused with the ability to show proactivity and be decisive, but humility is, Mm. to me, critical.
0: Jumping from humility and leadership to politics, um, I was fascinated to read in your book that you actually worked in the Federal Liberal Leader's Office whilst potentially a Labor voter at the time, which I thought was pretty interesting, but would you would you ever mix um, those leadership skills, the leadership skills that you clearly have and sense of social justice and um, try and make a massive difference by running for office?
1: Look, I, I and it comes through strongly in the book, I'm, I love, I've always been fascinated and compelled by politics. I'm a junkie of uh, political biography. But the short answer is almost certainly no. Fascinated as I am by politics, uh, I love what I do and I feel like to the extent I've got any capability to make some sort of po- positive contribution, the impact investing space and building the work of for purpose purposes is the main game and I'm not sure it'd be well served by other goals or distractions.
0: Thought it could potentially have got a massive scoop on this podcast, but didn't quite get there. Not on that question, anyway. But a couple of others. So, as an organisation grows, and you've obviously been part of massive organisations and and very small ones, how do you stop the culture of the organisation being institutionalised and dampening that entrepreneurial and innovative thinking that you get in small companies?
1: I think a lot of that is around maintaining at a leadership level the kind of energy and enthusiasm and demonstrating that we've got the capacity to grow and to innovate and we'll recognise and respect that. And I learned so much that was positive at Macquarie, as David Clark always used to say, we want to hire capable, smart people, give them rope and opportunity, full stop. And that always stuck with me. If you can do that and maintain that. I think the second part of it goes to a previous answer. I think humility is really important. If you look at my life cycle, um, I've had the privileged opportunity of working with others to be involved in building a private equity business at Macquarie, uh, social ventures, good start. It's also recognising when your value add and utility, particularly in a leadership role, is coming to an end and moving on from that. And my life cycle on those things I just know is at most 10 to 12 years. So recognising when it's time for you to move on and to identify the next gen of talent, the next gen of, en- en- uh, of energy to maintain that is is critically important. And the gift of being involved in working, backing a lot of business and social entrepreneurs is the brutal realities. I've seen too many organisations fail because a founder or a leader uh, haven't got out of the road when they should.
0: And as that organisation grows, you're interviewing people, you've got two equally qualified candidates. How do you determine who to hire?
1: I'm a sucker for passion So passion for the job, somebody who wants to do it, particularly in the social purpose space, that's a not negotiable. You've got to be able to look into the whites of somebody's eyes and see and know that they really care about what the organisation's trying uh, to do. If that's not there, it's a no-go zone.
0: Uh, we've heard about a lot of things that have gone right, and if people have read your book, they've read about a lot of um, things that have gone right. Do you mind mentioning when you've failed at something or something hasn't gone the way you would have liked to have gone and what you've learnt and um, how that might have set you up for success later on that same type area? Oh,
1: well, hopefully the book uh, picks up a heap of things that have gone wrong because there are many of those. It's almost a question of where to start. I, I would say one of the uh, biggest lessons – in both a business and social purpose sense is just really doing your homework on backing people. Um, when I'm asked, as I occasionally get asked to do now to reflect on kind of lessons, learning and leadership, I've got 10 bullet points. And the first one, and it's daylight, the first one is hire well, fire early. And that sounds brutal, but I just think it's so critical. Really do your homework and getting the culture fit. And if it doesn't work, call it early because it'll cause a world of pain if you don't.
0: And I quite often think that the person who may not be working out in the role is, is not suited and may well be happier doing something else anyway. Um, that's, that's what I've found on, on occasion. Absolutely. Um, the earliest or best investment decision you can remember making?
1: The second investment in our portfolio was Never Fail Springwater. And it taught us a lot of lessons because um, Sandy Lockhart, who I worked with for 12 years, and um, uh, he and I had both kind of fallen in love with this business and thought it was just a great opportunity. But And it was a big but. We had a pretty tough board that included David Clark and Tony Berg. Everything that we said we'd look for in a business in our original info memo, this thing wasn't. You know, It was about people that we'd known for a long period of time, asset-backed and so on and so on. But we just felt that he was an entrepreneur who really knew what he was doing. And and, uh, fortunately, the board let us have our way and basically said, which was classic Macquarie, it's like, look, If you guys really believe this and we'll let you back it, but you know, uh, you won't be afforded any favors if it doesn't work. And it, and it, and it did work. It was tough for the first year, but it was a brilliant business, a brilliant entrepreneur. And so that was an early lesson in kind of, I think, backing your judgment um, and the passion thing. You know, he was Harry Hilliam, who was the brilliant founder of it, was incredibly passionate. And the more you scratch the surface, the more I thought, this guy's really going to make this work. And, Mm. And he did. And it was a very, very successful investment for us. And quite important because we're at the front end of trying to build a business. So there's an exacerbated sensibility about the things you do working. Otherwise, you don't have a job.
0: Mm. Now, just talking quickly about risk, um, given the volatility we've seen in the last 18 months, have you had to amend the way you think about risk conceptually?
1: I've certainly learned a lot in my role at Sun Super. I think that gives you a much more global perspective. That's certainly taught me a lot about the importance of asset allocation, strategic asset allocation. I think as you get older, you maybe get a little bit more conservative. But my default setting, I think I'm personally quite entrepreneurial. I've cut my teeth in private equity which is a riskier end of the spectrum. So I'm unashamedly have got a tilt towards passionate entrepreneurs, towards businesses where you can see that there's a growth dynamic there and um, I do find that hard to get away from even as I, as I get older.
0: All right, now we're winding down a little bit here. Um, what advice would you give your 21-year-old self? And I've got to admit, I've pinched this um, question from a podcast that's got Slightly more followers and listeners in this podcast, just slightly. So, yeah, the advice you'd give your twenty-one-year-old self?
1: Well, I'm sure your podcast following will build, and I'm happy. I'm delighted to be the guinea pig, Matt. <laughs> my, my the advice to my twenty-one-year-old self would be to be less concerned about what others think. I think seeking approval. Um, is, uh, you know, as you come out of your teenage and adolescent years is something that kind of weighs, weighs can weigh you down a bit. So be less concerned about that and back your own judgment be less concerned about what others think.
0: Okay. And what wakes you up at night? You know, when you get that three o'clock in the morning, you think for the next two hours and you find yourself thinking about something, which kind of means you probably are worried about it. Well, six
1: six months ago it was an arthritic hip, which my COVID body maintenance project was to get rid of that, so that doesn't do it anymore. So that's a blessing. Um, I, on a on a work and personal front, uh, what I, generally it's a positive thing. It's enthusiasm mm. about hey, here's a deal or here's an opportunity. I get a huge, huge kick, you know, doing that catalyst deal and the energy and positivism of a team of people that. We can work with, to we think build a national scale ethical business that can make a real difference. That's fabulous. So, you know, waking up thinking, oh, if we could connect the dots and get this person who could make a lot of difference in opening doors for them to build national partnerships, uh, that stuff's really cool.
0: And if you had to name one person who's inspired you the most in any aspect of your career, who would that be? Well, I'll cheat
1: and name two. My father was a huge and positive influence given his background and a great role model. Uh, And the second who features pretty prominently in the book is my uh, friend and mentor, the Reverend Norman Drummond, who um, is both a practical and spiritual leader. But uh, his biggest gift to me was he really made me believe in myself uh, probably more than anybody else, and that's an incredible gift to have from somebody whose judgment you trust and respect.
0: No, absolutely. All right, now we're finishing Right on time, actually. And it's worked out very well. Um, this is a game that my nine-year-old likes to play. So, it, it, it look, it can't be too difficult, can it? How hard can it be? I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> so, I'm going to give you an either-or, and you've got to answer back immediately with one of these choices. All right? Does that make sense? Complete sense. All right. Ken Rosewall or Rod Laver? Rod Laver. Peter Snell or Kip Kano?
1: Uh, for the running addicted, Peter Snell, best of all time.
0: Value or growth? Growth. Bob Hawke or John Howard? Bob Hawke. To know a lot about something or know something about a lot. I don't know who said that, but I love it. So which one is it? Oh, by a massive
1: daylight to uh, to know a little bit about a range of things critical. Look around corners.
0: All right. And the last one, to fund 50 social entrepreneurs with $1 million each. Or one social entrepreneur with $50 million. So I'm going to be a pain in the
1: butt and split hairs on that. I'll say I'll fund $51 million social entrepreneurs, but one $50 million business entrepreneur because I've got different motives with each.
0: Can't argue with that. Michael Trail, it's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you for being the first guest on the Good Investing Podcast brought to you by Ethical Partners.
1: Delighted to be your guinea pig. And I have great respect for the work that you're doing here too, Matt. Thanks,
0: Michael. Thanks, Michael.
2: Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.